Well, keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 1. Our uh, new series in the book of Genesis is called Origins. It's a joy to be together with God's people in God's house to sing His praises and to remind ourselves that He is truly wonderful. Many of you have heard of the watchmaker analogy. If you're into apologetics, these are various ways to explain you know, who God is and how God is the creator of the universe. If you've heard of the watchmaker analogy, I'm going to modify here, uh, it here just in a moment. Pretend you're walking down the beach and your foot strikes something on the ground. You think it's a rock, a smooth stone, and you bend down and pick it up, and it's not a rock. It turns out to be a watch, but not just any watch, a Rolex. It has a glass face, a metal back, stainless steel strap, and it's still running. Your first thought wouldn't be, well, I wonder how long it took for the glass, the metal, the gears to assemble themselves little by little over a process of natural selection to make this watch. It'd probably be, wow, I wonder who lost their Rolex. But the watch didn't just show up by itself there. It was designed. The watchmaker analogy shows how design reveals a designer. And so a creation Everything that God has made, creation reveals a creator. And as you pick up that watch, a bunch of questions flood into your mind. You're wondering, how much is this watch worth? What's the make? What's the model? Who designed this watch? How did he make it? You begin to study it, and you think, well, maybe I'll call up a watch expert or two, people who know these things better than I do. But while you're examining this watch, someone walks up to you and says, I designed that watch. I'm the chief engineer for Rolex, and I'd love to tell you more about that watch. Whoa, having the designer standing there right in front of you changes things. So again, instead of examining the watch to learn more about it, you have the actual designer who can tell you about it. And so when the designer speaks, you simply need to listen. And it's the same with God. When the Creator speaks, we need to listen. When the Creator speaks, the Creator sets the agenda. Let God be God, as the reformer Martin Luther said. But I think our temptation in this day and age is to come to Genesis 1 with our own agenda and questions. We might immediately want to think, well, how does Genesis 1 fit in with the latest science? How long is a day in Genesis 1? Better questions I submit to you would be, who is God? And what is God telling us in Genesis 1? We have to remember that God doesn't answer to modern science. Science answers to God. Science answers to God. Now, I'm not against science. I studied engineering and I did chip design for Intel for nine years. The Christian faith is not against science. It isn't anti-science. Science has given us amazing tools to understand and benefit from creation. We have entire fields built on science, such as medicine and engineering. To paraphrase D.A. Carson, God creates and sustains in an ordered way so that science is possible, but he isn't bound by what he created. God is at perfect liberty to do things another way, so that miracles are possible. And thankfully, God creates and sustains the universe in an orderly way. Our existence depends on it. 
For example, I'm grateful we don't live in a random universe. In a random universe, if we lived in a random universe governed by random laws, what would happen if the law of gravity, for for instance, randomly changed? If if it changed, well, gravity could become so strong that we'd be instantly crushed, or it could change so you know we would suddenly float off into space. But our starting point is who is God? Who is God? And from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And you might be here this morning wondering, why does all this matter? Why does theology matter? Well, eternal life hinges upon knowing God. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. There will be a lot of people in hell who once said, to me, God was like fill in the blank. To me, God was like this, or God was like that. To me, God was, is, is only a God of love, and love wins in the end. There will be a lot of people in hell who made up their own God. We must think right thoughts of God if we would worship him as he desires to be worshiped, if we would live the life he wants us to live and enjoy the peace which he has provided for us. Horatio, Horatius Bonar. And so for us to know God, we must think right thoughts of God. Without those right thoughts, we have no clue how to worship him, how to live, how to enjoy the peace he has given to us. And so our big idea for today is this. Because God is the sovereign creator and supreme governor of the universe, let us worship him and let us trust him. Because God is the sovereign creator and supreme governor of the universe, let us worship him and let us trust him. Like standing face-to-face with the Rolex watchmaker, we stand face-to-face with the Almighty. And that means our job is to listen and let Him speak and let Him set the agenda. Today we're going to see how the first 25 verses of Genesis reveal God as sovereign creator and supreme governor. There's so much here that even the two additional messages we have planned for these 25 verses won't do these verses justice. But we'll do the best we can. So today we'll have two main parts. We'll first look at God as our sovereign creator, and then the second part, God is our supreme governor. So part one, God is our sovereign creator. God is our sovereign creator. So let's look at verse one of Genesis chapter one. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This phrase, heavens and the earth, is all-encompassing. It includes not just the endpoints, but everything in between. It's like saying A to Z or first to last. Everything in between is included. There isn't a word in the Hebrew language to, to describe, a single word to describe the whole known universe. So the Bible in the Old Testament uses the phrase the heavens and the earth to describe everything in the known universe, the totality of creation. And the totality of the entire cosmos, the entire creation, had a beginning, as we learn from Genesis 1-1. 
It came from God. And now, at this point, I'll dive into three subpoints for part one. God is our sovereign creator. Number one, God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. We'll cover this briefly since Tim spoke on these last week. When we say God is infinite, we mean God is not finite, not limited. God isn't, isn't limited by space, isn't limited by time, isn't limited by change. So God isn't limited by space. God fills the heavens and the earth, yet even the highest heavens can't contain God. God is everywhere all at once, and yet our universe, which is 93 billion light years across, can't contain God. Well, in the same way, God isn't limited by time. He isn't limited by time. In eternity past, prior to creation, before anything else was, God is, God was and is and always will be. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God, having no beginning and no end. Isaiah 43.10, God says, Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. The heavens and the earth didn't just appear out of nowhere. The heavens and the earth had a beginning, which science today even concedes. So God isn't limited by space. God isn't limited by time, and God isn't limited by change. You see, matter changes. Physical existence changes. As we see in Genesis 1.1, one moment matter didn't exist, and then by the decree of Almighty God, boom, matter existed. You change. I change. The universe changes. Science tells us that the universe is expanding, and at the farthest edges of the universe, it's expanding faster than even the speed of light. Can you believe that? It's expanding, and certain parts of it are expanding even faster than we can observe because you really can't observe faster than the speed of light. In a universe of constant change, with our lives in constant change, God remains the same, and his years will have no end. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Next point, number two, God alone creates. God alone creates. Next week, God willing, Tim will be talking about creation ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing by the spoken word. We can't get into that today. But today, I'll at least point out a basic pattern on how God creates. God says it. God does it. God names it. God says it. God does it. God names it. There's a simplicity to it, a majesty, a power to God's creation and how he does it. So let's look at day one, for instance. Day one, verse three. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God names it in verse 5. In day 2, verse 6, God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let, let, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made it. And then God names it in verse 8. Day 3, verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. Then God names it. God says it, God does it, God names it. Says it, does it, names it. 
As a side note, days four through six are slightly different. We'll look at that in more detail in a couple weeks. But I want to point out that naming, that naming component is essential to creation. It tells us something very important about God. If you don't have a name, for example, you don't have an identity. It's like you don't even exist. Think about it. One of the first things a parent does, one of the things you do when your baby is born is to name him or her. When Teresa was pregnant with our second child, we were hoping and praying for a girl. After Timothy, I was really optimistic. I was really praying that we would have a girl this time. So optimistic that I insisted that we only pick out girl names. We also wanted to be pleasantly surprised, so we decided not to know the gender until the baby was born. So during those nine months, I referred to the baby as a she, as a her. How is she doing? She's kicking again. I can feel her. But much to our surprise, a boy was born. Not a girl, a boy was born. Well, apparently God had other plans for us. Well, and this totally threw Teresa for a loop, and it took her a few weeks to even adjust to the fact that this baby is a boy, not a girl, because we had been spending the last nine months thinking of the baby as a girl. But the more urgent issue is we hadn't picked any boy names. Uh, At our checkup, the pediatrician gave the boy the name Baby Boy Chen, Baby Boy Chen. And the next checkup after that, they really began to get on our case uh, to name the child, to name the baby, because Baby Boy Chen simply wouldn't do. You can't call this child Baby Boy Chen indefinitely, forever. So we didn't want to be rushed, so we took some time to really think and pray. Uh, It took us a week, but we finally named him Hudson. Finally named him Hudson. And so Hudson's birth and entrance into the world was now complete with his name. There was something left incomplete without a name. In the same way, the creation was incomplete without that naming piece. Just as naming a child reflects the authority of the parent, the naming of creation reflects the authority of the creator. And only the parent does this. Only the parent names a child, not some random person off the street. Naming is an exclusive right and responsibility of the parent, the parents. And likewise, God alone, God alone names because God alone is the creator. No one else, no other thing is involved in creation. He's exclusively the creator. God alone speaks, God alone does it, and so God alone names it. Because God is the sovereign creator and supreme governor of the universe, let us worship him and let us trust him. That brings us to number three. God alone is sovereign. God alone is sovereign. The God who is eternal, infinite, and unchanging, who is the creator, he is also sovereign. To be sovereign means to be in charge. Right? The sovereign of a, of a nation is the one who's in charge of a nation. The king is a sovereign. To be sovereign means to have authority. That means lordship, power, and authority over creation belongs to God alone. So no molecule in the entire cosmos, let alone any planet or star or galaxy, moves or does anything apart from God's command. Genesis 1 is the exact opposite of what the surrounding cultures at that time believed. It's a reminder to us that the Bible has and always will be countercultural. 
The surrounding cultures had their pantheon of gods, many, many different gods. There was the god of light, the god of darkness. They believed in the god of the sky, the god of the sea. There was the god of land. We might even say Mother Earth today. But God created the light on day one and the sky and the sea on day two. God created the land on day three. They belong to him, so they answer to him. Those things are no objects, no no gods at all. They're simply created objects. On day four, notice how God doesn't even use the name sun or the moon. Look at verse 16. And God made the two lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. He simply calls them greater light and lesser light. But the Egyptians, for instance, they had names for the sun and the moon. The sun god was called Re, and the moon god was called Toth. Note that the sun and the moon in Genesis 1, they don't even get, they're not even given a name by God. They're only given a function. So in case that there was any doubt as to the deity of the sun and the moon, well, they don't even have a name. In Exodus, God executes judgments against the Egyptian gods, and there's a plague of darkness, as you remember, plague number nine, a plague of darkness lasts three days. The Egyptians worshipped Re, their sun god, but Re was completely powerless against Yahweh, the God of Israel. The sun and the moon aren't gods, and to quote one scholar, they're nothing more than an inventory of objects created by God. These are just an inventory of objects created by the almighty God of the universe. God literally put those things, the sun and the moon and the stars, in their place and would do so again for the sake of his people. Creation answers to the creator. That's what it means to be sovereign. For example, water has to obey its creator. When God assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, Proverbs 8.29, the waters must obey. When God orders the floodgates of heaven to open to flood the earth in judgment, the waters must obey. When God orders the Red Sea to part so his people can cross the Red Sea on dry land, the waters must obey. Everything that God has created in the first 25 verses must obey him. That's what, it, that's what we mean when we say God alone is sovereign. So in summary, God stands alone. Isaiah 45, 18 puts it this way. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. He is the Lord and there is no other. He alone is the one true and living God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Nothing was made apart from him. Nothing exists apart from him. Nothing has meaning apart from him. So that means Genesis 1 leaves no room for atheism, which says that creation was the result of random chance. That Rolex watch didn't just appear there, and neither did the universe. Genesis 1 leaves no room for pantheism, which says that all is God and God is all. We see creation is separate and distinct from the creator. The creation is not God. Genesis 1 leaves no room for polytheism, which says that there are many competing gods. And finally, Genesis 1 leaves no room for materialism, 
which says that the cosmos is all there is or has been or will be. Because God alone is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. In short, God is and there is no other. Because God is the sovereign creator and supreme governor of the universe, let us worship him and let us trust him. Let us dedicate our lives to him. That brings us to part two. God is our supreme governor. God is our supreme governor. Deism, deism, if you're familiar with that set of beliefs, believes that God created the universe and then checked out. God went on vacation. He wound up the clock, set it, and then left and just let it go. But the Bible rejects deism and teaches instead Christian theism, that God was not only active then, he's active now. He didn't just create then in Genesis 1. He governs the universe now. He's active now. And we see even from Genesis chapter 1 that every act of creation is followed by continuing acts of governance, those acts of governance which theologians have called providence. Providence. Uh, Providence isn't a word we typically use in our everyday vocabulary, but I'd love to reintroduce it. It's a word that the church has treasured throughout the ages. Providence is a word that summarizes God's supreme power as governor, that he upholds and governs everything from the, the, the smallest atom to the largest galaxies. It's a shorthand, like the word trinity is shorthand. The word trinity is a shorthand for one God, three persons. The Heidelberg Catechism in 1563 defines providence this way, and I think it's a relevant and still helpful definition. Defines providence this way. The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, Fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The God who made the heavens and the earth upholds and governs the heavens and the earth so that nothing comes by chance, but by his fatherly hand. There are no accidents in this universe. We're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit by introducing things that only happen after the fall. Before the fall of mankind into sin, there was no drought or sickness. But we talk about providence now so that we'll better appreciate providence later, after the fall. Because God is absolutely sovereign, he has absolute dominion and direction over everything. Nothing in this universe. Nothing happens apart from his will, and that includes things that are both good and bad, whether health or sickness, riches or poverty, good weather or catastrophic weather. There are no accidents in this universe, just God's fatherly hand. In our time remaining, let's look at a couple examples of this. A day two of creation, verses seven and eight. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. You see, God didn't just 
separate the waters and create the sky. He didn't just create these things and set it and forget it. God created a weather system as well, a way for water to move and circulate and fall throughout the earth. We're homeschooling our kids, and last year we learned about the water cycle. It has three main parts, if you wanted to boil it down. Condensation, uh, sorry, evaporation, condensation, and then precipitation. Evaporation, condensation, and precipitation. Those are the three main parts. But the point is that it's, it's not a random cycle that just simply set itself up randomly. It's a cycle put in there by God. If you haven't already, you have to check out that article on rain written by John Piper. Uh, it was an article that Tim referenced in one of the earlier handouts. But the point is that it's God's water cycle. He set it up, giving us rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, Acts 14, 17. But just as easily, God can choose to withhold rain and give droughts instead, give famines instead. The water cycle doesn't just run on its own. It answers to its creator. So when Jesus came to earth and showed us that he is the supreme governor, Matthew 8, 26 says that Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And then there was a great calm. How about day three, verses 12 and 13? The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. You have to notice this. God creates and sustains plants without the sun, which isn't created until day four. God provides providential care over creation. He does it without the sun, like we see right here in day three, right? There's plants and vegetation. Or God uses the sun, like we see on day four and later. Either way, God does the sustaining. God's providence includes replication. These plants and these trees reproduce. This is something Tim mentioned last week, that the life-giver implanted life-giving power in creation itself. So every single plant, every single tree, every single flower that we enjoy today can be traced directly back to day three of Genesis chapter one. And as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, God himself clothes the grass and the lilies of the field, Matthew 6.30. God makes the grass grow on the hills, Psalm 147, 8. And if his hand of providence does all that, clothing the grass and the lilies of the field, will he not much more take care of us, his people? In a similar way, we see God's providential care over the living creatures created on days five and six, the fish, the birds, and animals. All of them are providentially sustained by God so that they live and uh, reproduce. Finally, we'll end this section with day four, verses 17 through 19. And God set them, he's referring to the sun and the stars, in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Again, you have to notice this. God creates light on day one. That's before the sun, moon, and the stars were created on day four. So God himself is light, and in him there is no darkness. He gives light by his own power and presence without the sun, 
and the stars if he chooses to do that, or he gives light through the sun, moon, and the stars if he chooses to do that. But once again, God uses the sun and the stars, but he doesn't need them. A biblical theology of God as creator identifies him as originator, preserver, governor, and provider of the creation, Howard Van Til. Because God is the sovereign creator and supreme governor of the universe, let us worship him and let us trust him. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 11, puts this truth so eloquently. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. There's some of you here today, maybe some of you online today on the live stream, you haven't yet surrendered to the sovereign creator and supreme governor of the universe. Maybe you're still trying to find life and meaning and purpose in creation. Maybe it's a person that you build your life around or an object, a goal in life, or a pleasure. My question to you this morning is, why worship and serve the creation when you can have the creator? Why find life and meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction in someone, in something other than the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. As the Apostle Paul said in Acts 14, 15, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, all the things the nations of the earth pursue and worship in creation, to turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And the Son of God, alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit, is your creator and my creator, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. But not only did the Son of God make all things, he is the God of providence. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. But it gets even better. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, in a supreme act of condescension, chose to reveal himself and come down to our level, to come to us. So God chose to reveal himself in creation, yes, in providence, yes, and now in Jesus Christ in redemption, in redemption, taking on human flesh that he might suffer and die for our sins. God himself broke into our world, eternity in time, immensity in space, Infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming, the all as it were in that which is nothing. And he did all of that to display his glorious grace to sinners like you and me who only deserve his judgment, his wrath, his destruction. So if you haven't yet done so, come 
to God today. Come to Christ today. Repent of your sin today. Trust in Him alone today. For those of us who do know God, the triune God as sovereign creator and supreme governor, that means He is the Alpha and the Omega. When the Bible says, in the beginning, God, that implies in the end, God. God is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. You and I start things all the time, but there's no guarantee we'll finish them. I start reading many books, start many house projects, start many goals. Many do get done, praise God, but many are left incomplete. Maybe they'll never get finished. God will not leave anything incomplete. Nothing will be incomplete. As sovereign Lord, as the one who is eternal, infinite, and unchanging, he will most certainly finish what he starts. He began creation, and it will most certainly end with the new creation. Just check out the book of Revelation. And that is a source of unspeakable strength and comfort to know that God is Alpha and the Omega. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Let's pray. Father, we worship you Jesus Christ, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we worship you as sovereign creator and supreme governor. God, you are infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Help us to trust you when in those moments it doesn't seem like you are infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Help us to worship you alone, to dedicate our lives to knowing you, loving you, doing your will, and making you known on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.